When I was in seminary at Acadia Divinity College in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, back in the 80s, late 80s, <laughs> I studied New Testament under a man by the name of Dr. Allison Trites. And Dr. Allison Trites was a fine New Testament scholar and uh, very conservative, very meticulous, and uh, not given to speculation at all. Um, and then many years later, when I found myself as a missionary in Bolivia, uh, the seminary that we were teaching at in Cochabamba, Bolivia, invited Dr. Allison Trites to come from Nova Scotia down to Bolivia to teach a week on the continuing education for pastors on the subject of Bible prophecy. And I think it was in response to a little bit of a, a scarify that went through some of the Baptist churches in Bolivia concerning very speculative eschatology or end times teaching. Teaching that was very much given to guessing and date setting and thoughts like that and fear mongering and so on. And so because uh, Dr. Trites was a straight shooting New Testament scholar, they wanted him to come down and just kind of put things out in clear fashion. I remember that week as, as uh, uh, the translation was going on, he was teaching, and at the end of the week, uh, the professors opened it up for kind of a Q&A time when the pastors, and there was about 100 in the chapel, the pastors would have an opportunity to respond with some questions. And I was amazed that after a week of teaching on passages like Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21, which we're looking at this morning, Mark 13, these are all similar passages, of course, uh, after a week of expository teaching and preaching on these, many, many of the questions had to do with the program of end times. Many of the questions that the pastors asked had to do with whether or not the time was drawing near, whether or not it would unfold soon, how would the sequence of events happen, what was the final program, and so on. And every time, <laughs> every time he had a question like that, Dr. Trites would respond with quoting from Matthew 24, 42, where it says, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour that your Lord will come. Another question would come, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour that your Lord will come. And it was getting comical, because I kept on thinking, Why would this pastor stand up and ask that kind of question when I know what Dr. Trites is going to say? It seems like when we get onto the subject of Bible prophecy, that people tend to fall into one of two camps. And, uh, and again, this whole subject of eschatology is the word, a study of the last days or end times. Some people are, are so fascinated with the subject that they will travel for miles to, to uh, hear more Bible prophecy conferences, hear a teacher's new take on things, they will read the latest books on, uh, published on Bible prophecy. Um, and many times when these people read their Bibles, they will have a filter, a grid system, by which they look at Scripture through that grid and find in Scriptures something about Bible prophecy that maybe wasn't even in the Scriptures on Bible prophecy, but they're reading into it. We call that eisegesis instead of exegesis. And so there's that camp, and I have certainly known people like that. Honestly speaking, some of them have scared me because it seems as though they like ideas more than they love Jesus. 
There's another camp, and that's the other side of the fence. And those are the people that not only would they care, could they care less about the latest predictions or books about being published, but even Jesus' own words, which we're going to look at this morning, fall on deaf ears as they think about it. Just like listening to last week's news, when they hear about the imminent return of Jesus Christ to the earth, it's like, yeah, whatever. And of course, that is a very scary response when you think about the fact that they're responding, they're almost yawning in the face of God on the matter of the most, the most important event to come. The most important event that history waits for is the second return of Jesus Christ. And so I think that both of these groups are in error, one for making too much of Bible prophecy to the degree that they enter into speculative eschatology, and the other for yawning in the face of God about the most important event that, that could ever happen in all of history next to the cross and the resurrection. And so, as we think on this, Jesus says in Mark 13, No one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard. You'll notice a quote in your sermon notes from David Garland on that green piece of paper. It says, Mark 13 teaches that the last great act of history will come when God chooses without any preliminary warnings or signs. Jesus does say that certain things must happen. What are some of the things that must happen? Well, first of all, Elijah must come first. And he has in in the person of John the Baptist. Secondly, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be raised to new life. And he has. Thirdly, the temple will be destroyed. It has. The disciples will face persecution. They have. The gospel must be preached to all nations. It is being preached to all nations. And after these things, it is only a matter of time. How long it will be, we cannot know. The day and the hour, you do not know. Would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13? And I'm aware that we are attempting to study a very large portion of Scripture this morning. And yet I believe that in our time together, we can actually get a grip on what it is that this Scripture teaches, and we can understand the urgency of the message for today. So if you would take your Bibles, Mark 13, and uh, we're going to begin with verse 1. And I would ask you to stand with me as we hear God's Word. Mark 13. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones! What magnificent buildings! Do you see all these great buildings? replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Could you just keep your finger in there for a moment and and, uh, listen? Jesus said about the temple, perhaps the greatest structure, certainly in this time, At the time of Jesus, the greatest structure on earth. Jesus said, not one stone will be left on another. As we think about building a a, a house of worship on McGilvery property, (laughs) this is the same destiny of that building. Not one stone, not one piece of wood, not one shingle, not one thing about that building is going to last eternally. That building is simply to serve the purposes of ministry for this generation. 
it's an incredible text to be reading this week after last week when we talked about that. Verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? And Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it is, where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. For as soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know the summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on your guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going away. He leaves his house, he puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn, if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. For what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. May God bless his word. You may be seated. The first thing I'd like to say as we enter into chapter 13 of Mark is that we must not change our hermeneutic between chapter 12 and chapter 13, okay? What I mean by that is that 
we must not change the way that we interpret Scripture just because we are now opening up a page in Mark that is called Bible prophecy in our systematic theology books. We have been continuing all year in approaching the Gospel of Mark with the most natural way of understanding Scripture possible, and we will continue today to do that as well. And I think that if you look at it that way, as you will see, some of the confusion that surrounds biblical prophecy will be dispelled, and some of the clarity that ought to accompany this text maybe will descend upon us. So let's begin then by looking at Mark chapter 13, verse 1, how the text begins. Jesus, as you know from past weeks, has been in the temple courts. He's been teaching. He's been answering questions, debating, teaching, so on. And it says in the scripture that he is now going out to the Mount of Olives, which has a beautiful view of the temple east of Jerusalem. Down in the Kidron Valley, you go up into the Mount of Olives and you look across from the Olive Grove and you can see this beautiful, enormous structure called the Temple from the Mount of Olives. Jesus is going there with four of his disciples, we're told. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Now, right away, you know where they're from. You know what they're all about. They're from the north. They're from Galilee. You know, they make it to Jerusalem maybe once a year. And they are awestruck at the magnificence of the temple. I mean, these northern guys haven't seen a, a place too big, and now they come upon a structure that takes up one-sixth of the size of the city of Jerusalem. Thirty-five acres. Thirty-five acres. The temple. Incredible. All of its buildings, all of its courtyards. The stones of the temple, according to the historian Josephus, some of the stones of the base of the temple weighed over 100 tons. The largest stones were 37 feet long, 18 feet wide, and 12 feet high. Take a look at the shadow of that container outside our back of our church. That's 40 feet long, about 10 feet high, and about 8 feet wide. The stones of the temple were bigger than that container. Can you imagine a stone of solid stone that size and bigger? So it's no wonder that as they're leaving the temple and heading to the, to the Mount of Olives, the disciples say, what magnificent stones! And Jesus says, not one of these stones will be left on another. Not one of them. Jesus has already prophesied the destruction of the temple. He's already been teaching the, the, the Sanhedrin council about the fact that, that he will not allow his house to be called uh, a den of robbers when it's meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. He has already said that with his death and resurrection is going to come a new avenue of worship, not in temples built by hands. And it's about to take place. So there's an incredible moment here, historically, as the disciples leave Jerusalem, go up to the Mount of Olives, and um, the historian Josephus says that the outside of the temple, the face of the temple, was covered with plates of gold. And a stranger that was coming from the east toward Jerusalem on pilgrimage from a long distance off when the morning sun hit the temple it was like a mountain of snow he said brilliantly gloriously bright 
This was the most magnificent structure on earth at that time. The stones that were made up were bigger than some of the pyramid stones in Egypt. Just to put it into perspective, this was in a magnificent building. And um, King Herod the Great had built the size of this temple double the size of Solomon's temple. Okay, so this was a huge, expansive 35-acre complex, one-sixth of the size of Jerusalem at the time. And so the question comes when Jesus says not one stone will be left on another. The question in verse 4 is when will this happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? And the question that the disciples ask opens up this long discourse that follows. And Jesus answers the question in two parts. And this is critical. This is critical for our understanding of Mark 13. Jesus answers the question in two parts. <clears throat> One, the first part of the answer, is found in verses 5 to 23. And it involves that which would take place between the time that he spoke it and the time of the temple's destruction. Okay, that's critical. Okay, verses 5 to 23 will take place and it will be fulfilled. It has been fulfilled between the time of Jesus' speaking it, around 30, 33 A.D., to the time of 66 to 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. That is when the fulfillment of verses 5 to 23 took place. And the second part of it, the answer is found in verses 24 to 37, which speaks of another incredibly big event, and that is the second coming of the Son of Man to earth, Jesus Christ's return. A confusion comes to us in trying to make the first section be about the last days rather than about the first century. That's where confusion comes. So let's take a look at it together. Let's start with verses 5 to 23. And uh, as I say in the sermon outline, be on your guard, the value of being warned. Verse 5 begins with a warning. False messiahs would come and try to deceive people. It's incredible that Jesus, the true messiah, was rejected, yet false messiahs were coming and people were following them. Verse 7, wars and rumors of wars would take place. Verse 8, Nation would rise against nation. There would be earthquakes and famines. And Jesus says, these are just the beginning of birth pains. This is just, just the beginning of birth pains. Then in verses 9 to 11, it says that the disciples will face persecution, which will result in the gospel, verse 10, being preached to the nations. Folks, we read about that in the gospel in the book of Acts. In chapter 8 of the book of Acts, there is persecution. What happens as a result of persecution? All the apostles and other believers scatter out from Jerusalem and they go to all over the then-known world. The nations hear the gospel. The nations hear the gospel because of the persecution that takes place. And then in verse 12, Christians will face persecution, but not only from others, but also from their own families. Brother against brother, parents reporting, children reporting parents and rebelling, handing them over to be killed, believers being hated for following Christ. And as we consider 
the first recipients of the gospel, written gospel of Mark, hearing about this, reading these words, they would have been very well aware of that very thing happening under the persecution of Nero when they saw family members betray family members, when they saw Christians being lit up on fire, lions eating them, and so forth. So this was, this was not something that they couldn't relate to. They saw this take place. The generation that Jesus was speaking these words to, the four disciples, that generation did not pass away before these things were fulfilled. Because it was fulfilled 40 years later. And so we see, in fact, all of these signs were fulfilled in the four decades between the time of Christ and the destruction of the temple. Let me tell you about them. Five major earthquakes occurred in Crete in AD 46, in Rome, AD 51, Phrygia in AD 53, and in AD 60, and in Camponia in AD 63 all between the time of Christ speaking and the destruction of the temple. Five major earthquakes in that locale. Also, there were three great famines during the reign of Claudius. In Judea in AD 44, in Greece in AD 50, and in Rome in AD 52. Enormous, enormous famines in the land written of in history. In fact, in the year AD 65... Historians say that it was the worst year of famines and earthquakes in the entire history of all of the Roman Empire, A.D. 65, the worst year for famines and earthquakes. In A.D. 69, it's known in history as the year of the four emperors, for it was a time of political confusion and, and uh, leader against leader and jockeying for power and the year A.D. 69 began with the evil Nero losing his power to the emperor Otho, who then lost it to Vitellius. And the year ended in A.D. 69 with Vespasian having the crown. And as Vespasian made his way into Rome to receive his crown, his adopted son Titus had been given the orders to go to Jerusalem where he burned the temple, he destroyed the city, and he literally crucified thousands of Jews that lived there. That all took place 69-70 A.D. And so, friends, this is, this, verses 5 to 23 is not talking about now or in the future. It was taking place when, between the time of Jesus Christ speaking these words and the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Now in verse 14, we read of that very controversial phrase, the abomination that causes desolation, a, a passage from the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 27, chapter 11, verse 31. There have been a number of interpretations of to, as to what this means. But again, if we approach the Scriptures naturally, historically, not thinking that, that we are the center of the universe in the 20 or 21st century and that it was all written for us, but understanding rather that Jesus was writing particularly and firstly for the people that were listening, think about it. It makes sense to me that the destruction of the temple... When under, under Titus was very much the, the, the abomination that causes desolation. 
When, when he went in there, Titus went in there with his soldiers, they went right into the Holy of Holies. They went right into the sanctuary. And they set up altars and they sacrificed animals and they worshipped false gods in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was. That is the abomination that causes desolation. At least that's one very good possibility. And as I said, there are various interpretations and I... We can't go into what many, many have suggested. It seems to make sense. At least that would be one of them. And it's logical to assume that since Jesus specifically mentions Judea, that those who flee from Judea, verse 14, and that he mentions a phrase from Daniel referring to the enemy's desecration of the sanctuary, the temple, it makes good sense to me that he is predicting a horrifying event in the temple, and if that's the case, therefore it applies to a time when the temple was still standing. And the temple was still standing until 70 AD. <clears throat> now, we do not have time to go further into this, but if you look at verses 14 to 23, and if you read these verses with the perspective of the four disciples that first heard these words spoken by Jesus in the Mount of Olives, <clears throat> you can see that these things are speaking about what could occur or would occur at that time when the, the temple was destroyed, when many Jews were killed, and the cutting short of those days, verse 20, is referring to that time as well, the temple's destruction. That the days were cut short so that more would not have to be crucified and suffer and so on. And it was a horrific event. And so that, that, is, that is the way that Jesus begins answering the disciples' question. He ends the section as he began it, <clears throat> excuse me, referring to that time in history. He says by saying, he starts by saying in verse 5, watch out. He ends by saying, be on your guard, verse 23. And um, notice uh, very interesting in verse 14, <clears throat> this is the only time I can think of that Jesus does this. He says, let, let the reader understand. Interesting, isn't that? Jesus is preaching, telling his disciples in the Mount of Olives these things, and he says, let the reader understand. <laughs> Jesus knew that, that he would be recorded, that he would be, his words would be written down and shared with his people, his followers. And he's thinking about 40 years later, as the manuscripts would be shared from church to church and read publicly. And he's saying, let the reader understand these signs so that you're ready when this happens. He's talking about the first big cataclysmic event which was happened in the first century, 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. So what we've learned so far is that from the perspective of Jesus and the disciples, the destruction of the temple must take place before the end would come. Because that's the first thing that he, he highlights. And the disciples, like many people in history, had made the mistake of connecting that catastrophe with the end of the world. They literally saw that when the temple's destroyed, that's the end of the world. That's when Jesus must be coming back to take his, his kingdom up. And, and throughout history, that is really the way that many, many people have interpreted prophecy. They have a, a kind of a tunnel vision on their era. When people were going through the plagues in Europe, 
there was all kinds of writing and preaching that the, the time of the coming of the Lord is at hand, now. And, and so everybody thought that, that, that they were in the last days then. You see, we have a tendency to interpret history and prophecy according to our experience of history. But we could be absolutely wrong. The fact is that from the, from the time of the destruction of the temple until now, Jesus could come at any time. Because he said over and over again, the day and the hour you do not know. And so we continue to live in light of the fact that he could come in our generation, in our lifetime. We do not know. And so let's move on to look at the following, verses 24 and following. <clears throat> and I want you to notice that in verse 24, there's a change in tone. Jesus says, but in those days, following that distress, that distress, following that distress, the destruction of the temple. He says, in those days, following that distress, at that time when men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, verse 26, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. In between there, between verse 24 and 26, Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 13 and, and chapter 34. And he says that the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Wow. Clearly, clearly in this section, Jesus is referring to another important time of distress in history that would come after the first time that he's spoken of in verses 5 to 23. After the destruction of the temple. And it's, not, it's characterized by the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus himself. But the language is so different, we have to see the difference. The language between these two sections could not be more different from local and world things like famines and earthquakes and persecutions and nations rising up against nations to things like the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavenly bodies from the local to the cosmic. Do you see it? Verses 5 to 23, local, global stuff going on. But then all of a sudden, we're up in the heavens. We're talking about the cosmos that is getting ready for the coming of the supremacy of Jesus Christ to earth. You see, these two things are so different. The language is different. And in the first case, Jesus is talking about something that his disciples should run away from. You who are in Judea, flee for your lives. But in the second portion of this scripture, he's not talking about... No one can run away. When Jesus Christ comes in the clouds, he will see everyone. No one can hide. And every man will see him, it says. See, these are two different things. One that took place in the first century. The other we are awaiting. And so, in Revelation 1-7, it says that he is coming with the clouds... And every eye will see him. Verse 26 of Mark 13, At that time men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Every Christ follower, every Christ follower from every nation and tribe and tongue and language, from the most remote place on planet earth, every Christ follower 
will be gathered up by angels sent out and will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That is the incredible second coming of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is not might, maybe, possibly. This is sure. This is, this is as certain as any certainty can be. You must not be doubting the reality of this event. Why, why is it that about a half a dozen times Jesus says, watch, be on your guard, look out throughout this text? You must not doubt the reality of this event. The second coming of Christ will certainly occur. It is coming. It is going to happen. He is coming back. He is going to fill up all that has to be filled up, and the Father will say to the Son, It's time. It's time. Go. And Jesus Christ will be sent. And the main message that Jesus is saying over and over again be watchful, be careful, be on your guard. Let's move to the last point of the message. Number four, keep watch, the purpose of ambiguity. In the last section of this discourse, Jesus turns to the use of parables. And perhaps it was just natural since he was on the garden of, in the garden on the Mount of Olives at that time to pick up a fig branch. On that was, was olive trees and fig trees and so on. And maybe he just picked up a branch from a fig tree and he held it up as he looked out at the temple west of the, of the garden, and he, he looked across and he could see it. And as he held the fig branch, it seemed to just be a lesson for them. In verses 28 to 31, seems to be more of a reference to the prophecy about the first big event, the destruction of the temple. As they're looking at the temple, the disciples were struck with it. They were staring at it. And Jesus refers back. And so also you will know that the time of the destruction, just as a fig tree, as it's ripening, gives evidence of it with its twigs and leaves, so also, as you see these things coming to pass in these next four decades, similarly, that, that destruction of Jerusalem and its temple will come near. There will be increased earthquakes, famines, persecutions, and so on. And in verse 30 makes sense in this light when he says this generation of the apostles would not pass away until all that he had spoken would come to pass. That makes sense now. This generation would not pass away. In verse 32, Jesus then switches back to the subject of his second coming and he identifies that not even he knows the day or the hour, but only the Father who is in heaven. And the emphasis throughout this section is on the exhortation, be ready, be watching, be waiting. He ends in verse 37 with the word, watch. Now there's much more information in Matthew's gospel, for example. There are some more parables. But in Mark's gospel, the more condensed version, this is where he ends. He says, watch, watch. Years after Jesus had spoken those words, Peter, who was a witness to that sermon discourse, he writes in his second epistle, 2 Peter chapter 3, and verse 3, he says, First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say, Where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Peter's, Peter's writing just a couple of decades after 
And he is writing and he's saying, there's scoffers that are going to come. They're going to say, where is this coming that he promised? Many days, you might even hear those scoffers. You might even have that, that thought in your mind sometimes. Where, where, where is the coming? Do we really believe that? It goes on, Peter, to say in verse 9, perhaps the reasons given why he tarries. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, but he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought we to be, Peter says. For me, this is, the, this is where it all comes into focus for us. Why did Jesus record all this? Why was it written down for us, you know, 2,000 years later? It was written down because we need to think about what kind of people should we be in light of this truth, of his imminent return. Peter continues, he says, What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promises, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Since you're looking forward to this, Peter says, I, I stopped when I read that the other day. I had to stop and I said, am I looking forward to this? Are we looking forward to this second return of Jesus Christ? I mean, really, do we, do we put that as an important thing in our, in our list of things that we hold on to and cling to like life? I think sometimes, you know, we're so content on the earth and we've made our lives just so comfortable that we don't really need to look forward to that. Maybe if you were honest with yourself in the back of your mind you're thinking, yeah, I, I believe that's going to happen but kind of hoping it doesn't happen yet. I want to get married. I want to see grandchildren. I want to... And you got your bucket list. Friends, do you know that any bucket list that anybody could ever name is going to look like foolish child's play once we get to heaven and, and the glories of, of, of what he's got prepared for us? Do you think that anybody is going to be in heaven and saying, Jesus, why did you come so soon? I wanted to finish my bucket list. <laughs> uh-uh, it's not going to happen. There's nothing no eye has conceived, no ear has heard, no mind has been able to conceive of the things that he has prepared for us. And so in conclusion, when Jesus returns, I want you to know, first of all, that he is not going to quiz you on Bible prophecy. He is not going to ask you if you were pre-trib or post-mill or whatever. He's going to ask you, how did you spend your time? What have you been doing? Have you been watching? Have you been waiting? Have you been ready? And have you been telling others about the need to be ready? That's what he's going to do. And so as we conclude our service, let's ask the Lord to make us that kind of people. 
Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you so very much for your grace and your goodness. Lord, as we think about these things that we've read about, I know that I, I go through days not thinking of your return. What if it were today? What if it were this afternoon? Oh God, I ask you to help us to not leave things undone. Just as we say at funerals when it comes time to die, make sure that's all you have left to do. Lord, may we not leave anything undone. And uh, make us people, O oh God, that are ready, waiting, watching. And, and Lord, make us people who have been storing up treasures in heaven, where moth does not destroy, where thieves do not break and steal, and so on. And Lord, we thank you so very much for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, and the certainty that we have that whatever happens on this earth, whatever happens to this body, whatever happens to us here, Lord, you will correct it all. You will make things right. And Lord, we end with that scripture word, Maranatha. Even so, come Lord Jesus. May we look forward to that day. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. We'll end our service now. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and may he give you peace. God bless you. Go in peace.